From the New Media Project at the NYU School of Medicine, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, it's the IOP Smackdown, surgical versus medical therapy for 24-hour control. And yes, the study showed that for a well-controlled PLEB and medical therapy of uh, two to four medicines, that the uh, pressure is uh, lower with surgical therapy. But what does this mean clinically? First this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Dr. Stewart declares no real or apparent conflicts of interest. Did you know that you can get every episode of As Seen From Here as soon as it comes out and without ever having to visit a website? It's called subscribing, and it's free. Each week, subscribers get As Seen From Here automatically loaded onto their iPods, MP3 players, and computers by using a program called a podcatcher. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the How Do I Listen button. Subscribing only takes a minute. Free podcatchers are available for Windows, Macintosh, and Linux computers. I put links to download an excellent podcatcher on the How Do I Listen page of asseenfromhere.com. Then, within hours of my podcasting an episode, you'll have it too. Our understanding of glaucoma has evolved significantly from the one-size-fits-all model of pressures that are absolutely high or absolutely low. We now talk about goal pressure ranges and percent reduction. But even these more nuanced descriptions have one enormous limitation. They represent pressures from an isolated reading in a very long day. Even diurnal pressure measurements are necessarily limited to those obtainable during office hours and in the sitting position. Bill Stewart's recent study investigates not only what happens in day and at night, sitting and recumbent, but also investigates whether these diurnal and nocturnal fluctuations vary with the surgical or medical modalities of glaucoma therapy. Bill comes to us from the Pharmaceutical Research Network, and I begin the interview asking him to describe this organization. Basically, it is a uh, company that my wife and I run that manages research in ophthalmology. So there's a um, just a management side, which she really does, and there's really the academic side. It's sort of a private research institute. There's the academic side, which I do, which you know generates articles like the TASOS one that you saw. And you then get contracts for research from pharmaceutical companies? Yeah. So the uh, like there's a there's an element of uh, research that we do that's free, just out of academic interest, like the surgical paper. Uh, that there's no support for, but we have to survive by getting research grants on you know good ethical uh, research. So, yes, but it's, it's all privately funded. That's great. I just wanted to get some clarification about what the company is. No, it's a, it's a little uh, strange and a little unique. So, we I was at the university at Charleston University at a long time at the University of uh, South Carolina Medical Branch there at Charleston. And just how I could do research and serve probably better on the private side. So it really shouldn't be like that, but it sort of gives us more flexibility and speed in which we can serve uh, other people and get research done. Thanks for clarifying that, Bill. Oh, thanks for asking. Prior to this study, what did we know about the relative efficacy of medical therapy versus surgical therapy versus 
laser therapy for the management of glaucoma? Well, that's a uh, that's a good question. It's a difficult question. It's a controversial question. I think you know classically, therapy for glaucoma, as you know, is a bit a three-step process: medical, laser, and then surgical. And I think we know from some of the fine NIH trials done over the past uh, decade and a half that both laser and surgery can be used as primary therapy effectively. And however, classically, most people have, most physicians have relied on medical therapy first because it's effective and it's easier. It doesn't have also the complications that trabeculectomy classically has, and so it's just more predictable, uh, easier therapy for most physicians to perform. Now, I think that there is a small segment that does perform laser surgery commonly as primary therapy. I think in symposium in the States, when I ask this question, probably 2 to 4% of doctors would, would raise their hands. And the, and the surveys I've performed, generally doctors will, in Europe and the United States, will perform laser surgery and surgical therapy after two to three, uh, two medicines and three medicines of laser and after three to four medicines with uh, trabeculectomy. In terms of efficacy, they're all efficacious. So I think in terms of mean pressure reduction, I think even in the, you know, certainly surgery allows for a, if it's successful, a, a better permanent outflow facility creation and a potential of a lower pressure perhaps the medical therapy can give, even in the uh, census trial, that where uh, each, both the surgical group and the medical group is supposed to have a 40% reduction, there was still a 1 to 2 millimeter mercury greater reduction of surgical therapy despite the, an excellent effort in, in reducing by a medical therapy. But having that said that, it has been shown that you can use medical therapy to achieve target pressures of 18 or less very effectively. They're all, all effective and, and, and there's sort of a classical approach to therapy. Prior to this study, what did we know about the 24-hour intraocular pressure fluctuations with each of these therapies? Well, we haven't known a lot. Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of studies looking at laser therapy. There was really nothing uh, too much with surgical therapy before. As I remember now, there's been some several studies looking at daytime uh, uh, results with uh, ALT in terms of fluctuations, but generally uh, we have not. Uh, we generally do our fluctuation studies in a particular way of six time points over 24 hours, looking at the mean difference between the highest and the lowest pressure for each individual patient, taking the mean of that. So nobody had really done it quite that way before. There have been a couple of studies looking at fluctuations uh, with ALT, but it's, a little, it's been a little bit hard to compare between what we did and the prior studies. Why do intraocular pressure fluctuations matter from a clinical standpoint? Well, it's a, it's a real good question, I, and we don't know that they do. And I think it's still a controversial point. We know that mean pressure reduction is important, uh, no doubt about that. But is the fluctuation important? There are several studies that hint at that. A couple of, uh, I've done about, with uh, co-authors, five studies that have been published over the past decade looking at retrospective outcomes of patients and target pressures. And we found in two of those five that the peak pressure 
was independently related by linear regression analysis to progression, so independent of mean pressure reduction. But in three, they were not. It was clear that higher fluctuations or higher peak pressures was associated with more progression in all these studies, but only two was it really independent. In, in the same manner, we know in the ages crop, Paul Palmberg, he showed that now this, uh, this famous number that patients with never a peak pressure above 18 and a mean pressure of just over 12, those patients had the lowest rate of uh, progression. So he's sort of describing again the term fluctuation uh, in terms of peak pressure. The study that most closely or is most usually referenced in terms of the importance of uh, 24-hour fluctuations is Azarani's paper in the journal Glaucoma, I think 2001 in March, or 2000, excuse me. And he showed that he they measured prospectively over five days 24-hour fluctuations with a home tenometer and related to uh, historical data in terms of their outcomes and showed that indeed the fluctuations were an independent risk factor in terms of fluctuation. But the study was small, only 64 patients. There was a lot of progression, over 50% in that uh, study, more than what we typically see in private practice at the uh, Duke Medical Center. So there's still some, not everyone accepts that paper as final proof of the importance of fluctuation. So yeah, it's a controversial point. I think most people would tend to think, well, yes, it must be important, but that final proof is not uh, there yet. Bill, can I have you describe the design of this study? Well, what we did is that we prospectively looked at patients who'd had successful trabeculectomy with uh, mitomycin and uh, patients who were was treated with what uh, my co-author, Tossus Constance, described as maximum medical therapy for him and his colleagues involved in the study. Generally, that was just over three medications, but it ranged between two and four. Patients were matched then for 10 o'clock pressures, excuse me, with one plus or minus one millimeter mercury between a surgical patient and a medically treated patient. And then once the pair was matched, these patients underwent 24-hour diurnal curve testing for their intraocular pressures. So that consisted of six time points, 10 a.m., 2 p.m., 6 p.m., 10 p.m., 2 a.m., and 6 a.m. So they were admitted to a 24 or to a hospital unit, and then after awakening at 2 and 6, they were taken quickly to a nearby room and sitting Goldman Appalachian tonometry was performed. One of the parameters that you measured in this study was the Aegis visual field scores. Now, I'm aware of the Aegis study, uh, but I'm unaware of the Aegis visual field scores. Can you explain how these work? Yeah, that is, that is just a visual field scoring of 0 to 20 based on the severity. So you can assign then a number and it, conform, uh, it has the advantage then, of course, of being able to perform better using better statistical test by assigning that number. But it was just a way generally in the study to classify the uh, patients, but of course is not important to the results itself. What were the inclusion criteria with respect to the Aegis visual field scores uh, and in general? 
Yeah, the basically the patients either had to be on what was considered maximum medical therapy or have had a successful trabeculectomy, otherwise they have an apparent bleb, the, the patient was on no other medications, and of course the key was then to match the patients at the 10 o'clock pressure because we wanted both groups to have had the definition of being controlled. They could have had POAG, they could have had uh, exfoliation as well. So the group was not, about half the patients in Greece where the patients were actually seen, half the patients are have exfoliation, so it's fairly common. So the groups were not pure in that regard. We did want them to have a fairly advanced glaucoma, so we used an age score of uh, 11 or worse for entry into the uh, study. Of course, they need to have an informed consent, the exclusion, typical exclusion criteria that they had to be, not have any danger by being in the study. They uh, need to understand the trial procedures and such. Were the nighttime pressures checked with the patient sitting up or with the patient lying down, since obviously this makes a great deal of difference? We did, uh, we did them sitting up. So typically, uh, up to this point, we have done these pressures by, uh, again, by awakening and immediately getting them into the sitting position and, and taking the pressure with a gold mom. We use a gold mom because it's the gold standard in terms of checking the pressure. We're about to undertake a study, actually, of untreated patients, glaucoma patients, taking them laying down and sitting up in order to uh, compare. But applination, gold on application will be used in both instances, laying down and sitting up. Were there any differences in the demographics of the study groups other than the fact that uh, one group had been treated medically and one group had been treated surgically? Yeah, no, actually, they turned out to be extremely close. The age, gender, study diagnosis, the baseline visual acuity, the age of scores, cup disc ratio, the uh, mean deviation field defect were all uh, very similar between the two. The ratio of open angle glaucoma to pseudo exfoliation was approximately the same. Was the same, yes. Uh huh. Bill, what were your results? Well, it's very interesting. I probably I was a little bit surprised that the after matching for 10 a.m. for the other time points, the intraocular pressure was statistically lower uh, with the surgical group at every time point for the mean 24-hour diurnal pressure, and in terms of what we call the range of pressures. Otherwise, the highest and lowest for each patient was about half. It was 2.3 for the surgical group, 4.8 for the medical group. I think of all the uh, patients, probably about 30% had peak pressures above 18 in the medical group, none for the surgical group. So there was a clear difference in the 24-hour control between uh, these patients. So not only did the medical therapy group have higher pressures overall, they also had more variability in their intraocular pressures than the surgical treatment group. Yes, that's true. A few patients in the group had pressures above the 18 level, that which the Aegis scores indicated that it should be below on a consistent basis. I think 11 of the patients had reached above 18 at least some, some point in the 24-hour curve. Now, in an earlier podcast, I spoke with Henry Jampel about the CJIT study, which also compared medical therapy for glaucoma to surgical therapy and found a greater pressure reduction in the surgical treatment group. And one of the points that Dr. Jampel made was that 
with medical therapy, the medical therapy is more titratable. And you can treat until you reach your goal, and then people tend to stop there. Whereas surgical therapy is more likely to overshoot the treatment goal, since with surgical therapy, uh, you do the surgery and you, you get what you get, and it's less titratable. And you're therefore more likely to, in essence, overtreat the patient. Uh, you sure can, particularly with mitomycin filters. You can overshoot and, and get into hypotony and maculopathy. Just in general, that traps are more difficult to titrate than medical therapy. And uh, he proposed this as a reason uh, for why the trabeculectomy group had lower average pressures than the medical treatment group. Well, I, and, and it, this gets into the important question, what is the meaning of the study? It's basically a really first attempt, to our knowledge, to look at 24-hour fluctuations between medical and surgical therapy. And yes, the study showed that for a well-controlled bleb and medical therapy of uh, two to four medicines, that the pressure is uh, lower with surgical therapy. But what does this mean clinically? And I think it's important to say I'm not advocating and the authors are not advocating surgery first or surgery earlier. And we're not saying that surgery, certainly not saying that surgery is better than medical therapy. And I think because there are a lot of limitations to the study. One is, of course, is the issue of are the are the fluctuations important? And as I mentioned before, we, we still don't know. Uh, you know. The second limitation is uh, that these were perfectly working blebs, and you know, there's a lot of gradation in the um, bleb results. Uh, it's far from a perfect surgery. You can overshoot, just as you said. Many patients have partial blood failure or complete failure, so they're back on medications, or you may have to repeat the blood. You know, there's the whole issue, as clearly seen in situs of cataracts and the complications mm-hmm. and the difficult follow-up. We know these patients, on average, take about nine to ten visits after uh, performing a uh, blood. And yes, the pressures were higher on medical therapy on the in the study, but if you knew they were higher, then as uh, Henry Jean Paul appropriately said, you could add a medication because what's maximal medical therapy of on average three medications to my co-authors, the the Greeks in this study, doesn't mean you cannot add a medication really and and use four if you have to, you know, if that's what you think is in the patient's best interest or or potential, well, most of these patients, but not all have had laser therapy. So there's that option as well. So, and, and even if, do we know really that a, a consistent pressure of 14 is any worse than a consistent pressure of 12? And, and no, we don't. That for most patients is probably, as, as we've shown in, in some of the studies I've done retrospectively, that that is adequate for 85 to 95% of patients. So it's, uh, there are a lot of questions. I think this study raises more questions than, than really what it answers. Unfortunately, it, the, the questions of the importance of fluctuations, you know, what are the fluctuations of a partially functioning blood, you know, can you add another medicine and really get lower fluctuations than what we've seen in this paper. And, what, and of course, this is a short-term study. You know, what are the ultimate visual outcomes over five years? And, and we just don't know. So it's certainly not a study to change 
uh, how we do things. It just begins to add up to our knowledge regarding surgical versus medical fluctuations. Why do you think that intraocular pressure varied less in the surgical treatment group than in the medical treatment group? You know, good question, and certainly the study doesn't answer that. I, I think if I had to guess that by opening up a well-defined hole into the curricular meshwork in these patients with a nice egress out through the conjunctiva assured by the mitomycin that that probably lowered the resistance more than what changing outflow or inflow on a molecular basis can do with medications. And so it did protect the patients better from any physiologic changes in aqueous production that the body may cause. I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second here. Oh, please. Another way to interpret your results might be that surgical patients tend to have their peak intraocular pressures earlier in the day than medicated patients do, so that when you initially matched the groups in their morning intraocular pressures, you were catching the surgery patients at their peaks while catching the medicine patients while the intraocular pressures were still going up. And that if you had matched them at another time in the day, let's say later in the day, noon or afternoon, when the medical therapy group had been peaking, that your results would have been just the opposite. Well, that's, um, you know, we were seeing higher peak pressures with the medical group in, in the evening. Yes, so just the opposite of what we see with patients with typically higher pressures. And since we don't, that's possible because we don't really know a lot about the 24-hour curves of patients on this much therapy. There just haven't been a lot of previous studies. The reason why we chose 10 as a matching criteria was that in Greece, actually patients get up later in the States, we would have chosen 8 o'clock, but it's typically the peak pressure time. So we wanted to choose that time to see what would happen the rest of the day. Now, what I'm saying is this, is that the assumption that you make is, is that you're matching the groups at the time, as, as you said, of, of peak pressure uh, at 10 in the morning. But if you look at the pressure curves for that group, for the medical group, the peak pressure was not at 10 in the morning. It was, in fact, at, at 2 in the morning. It was similar as it would be. But I think also if you overlaid the curves, even if the surgical group had been a little bit higher, the fluctuations... I don't think it would have changed the fluctuations, probably. So, but you make an interesting point. I don't, I don't disagree with you. Bill, how have these findings shaped your own practice? Are there things that you're doing differently now knowing what you found out? I would not change how I practice. I think that's, uh, again, I'll make that point strongly. It, it, there's just too many unanswered questions that remain. Again, I'll, I'll emphasize medical therapy is safe. We know it, as uh, Henry Jean Paul uh, said to you, you can titrate it. It's a classical first step. Trabectoectomy is a needed surgery at the, with the proper indications. It gets the pressures down when it works, but it does have complications, and it's not, it's not a predictable surgery. It takes a lot of postoperative care, and it, although it caused the lower fluctuations in this study and perhaps a lower mean pressure, it was, these were perfectly working blood. So there's a, a gradation here of, you know, we're, we're choosing a, a well-defined, uh, well-working group and comparing it to a medical group. And that's not, not real life. You can't make generalizations in terms of changing indications. So I think to um, 
the, the practicing clinician, I would not change what I do on this based on this study. I think it's of interest. I think it raises a lot of questions in terms of the importance of fluctuations. What's what are fluctuations of a partially functioning blood? Can you can medical therapy really lower fluctuations any more than 4.8? This is a number of that we typically see with with one or two medicines as well. So it it three the four medicines did not bring the, that level down any further. But it's still, we have these broader questions, which I raised before. What are the importance of fluctuations? We know that mean pressure reduction is important, but what, what's the peak pressure that we really need, and is that important? And I'll say this, too, that we, importantly for the practicing physician, we don't yet know what is the level of fluctuations that they need to keep the patient from progressing if it is important. We know that the mean pressure should at least be 18 or less, and but these numbers in this trial of 2.3 millimeters mercury fluctuation versus 4.8 surgical versus medical therapy, we don't know if that's an important difference, and it, it could be a fluctuation of 4.8 is just fine. So we don't know that target fluctuation number to give clinicians to help them, and we also don't know when to measure the pressure throughout the day to get an adequate fluctuation number. That's actually something Tassos and I are, are evaluating right now. But obviously, in routine clinical practice, you can't stay up all night with all your patients and get 24-hour fluctuations. It's just not practical. So we need to take this whole area of uh, 24-hour fluctuations, change it into a find out if it's important, find out the times of day that a practicing, busy practicing clinician can measure it reasonably and come up with a uh, then a target pressure that means something to the uh, practicing doctor. And we're just not there yet. Bill, do you have any message for clinicians in practice now? You know, at the end, the, the take-home message to the clinician, the only thing I can say to them right now is that, you know, check the pressure throughout the day. It's just what you said, you know, don't check the pressure at 8 a.m. right before Mrs. Jones goes to work because that's convenient for her. You know, make her come in in the late afternoon at noontime and over time, you know, at least at this point get a modified diurnal curve so you, if there's a peak pressure throughout the day that you can identify it and, and make sure that you're treating that peak pressure to a, a lower level. So um, you're, uh, you're exactly right. You get one pressure is a... Uh, it's like a snapshot of a moving train. You don't know where it's come from. You don't know where it's going. Bill Stewart, thank you very much. My pleasure. Nice to talk with you. William Stewart is director of the Pharmaceutical Research Network in Charleston, South Carolina. His paper, 24-Hour Pressure Control with Maximum Medical Therapy Compared with Surgery in Patients with Advanced Open-Angle Glaucoma, appears in the May 2006 issue of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Stewart or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275. Or Skype J Young MD. Those numbers can be found on our website 
as seenfromhere.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the new media project of the NYU School of Medicine and is edited by Joe Fry. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.